0: Please turn with me in your Bibles, if you would, to Philippians chapter 4. Philippians four ten through 13 uh, will be our sermon text for this morning. But before we read that together, let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you that you have called us to come to you, to draw near to you, We thank you for your word uh, by which we draw near, that we can come to you through your word. We can come to hear. We can come to listen, and we pray that you would speak to us by your spirit. We pray that you would give us ears to hear, and we pray, Father, that you would use your word this morning to uh, challenge us, to grow us, and to change us into the image of your Son, our Savior Jesus. Pour out your Spirit on us to those ends, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Philippians 4, I'll read verses 10 through 13. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly, that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through Him who strengthens me. I can only be happy if. How would you finish that sentence? What fills in that blank for you? I can only be happy if my children come to faith. I can only be happy if I get married. I can only be happy if my spouse agrees with me. I can only be happy if I get my PhD. I experience sexual pleasure. I am respected, loved, accepted. I can only be happy if I have money and possessions, the right car or toy or game or house or spouse. I can only be happy if the people around me are wearing masks. I can only be happy if I don't have to wear a mask anymore. Upon what does your joy depend? We've been talking for a few weeks now about lies that we believe, and we've discussed three lies so far. Uh, The lie about wisdom, that only I know what is true for me. The lie about identity, that, that I'm really a very good person after all. And the lie about power, that I have what it takes within myself. And this morning we come to a lie about joy. I can only be happy if. And as with each week, we will talk about the deception itself, what it destroys, what it distorts, and what it denies. And so our outline this week, you can see it in your bulletin. Uh, First, we'll look at the lie, I can only be happy if, and we'll see how this lie destroys both our relationships and our joy. Though we'll also see that we were made to find joy in or to delight in. But finally, we'll see that contentment, that is lasting, stable joy, is found only in Christ. And so first the lie I can only be happy if. I can only be happy if means that there is something in life, right? Some object, some circumstance, some person, some relationship that I see as essential for my happiness. My happiness hinges on this thing, this person, this event. I can only be happy if I get recognized for my achievements or I can only be happy if I work my way out of poverty or I get good grades in school, or I marry the right person. I can only be happy if I am right, or I win, or I am in control, or I am at the center of attention. Often this line of thinking flows into other things, like uh, God wants me to be happy. This too is a kind of lie. Uh, I say a kind of lie because it's also kind of true, isn't it? Uh, God does want us to be happy, but he wants us to be happy in him, not happy apart from him. And he wants that, he wants us to be happy in him, not apart from him, because he knows that there is no lasting happiness apart from him. He knows what will truly bring joy to our souls, but we're getting ahead of ourselves. And so we think things like, I can only be happy if I have the right spouse, and God wants me to be happy, so if I'm married to, quote, the wrong person, I should get a divorce and find a better spouse. See, we can justify anything by, I can only be happy if, and God wants me to be happy, therefore, and we draw our own conclusions. Or there's a a kind of secular version of that, right? we we say, I, you, whoever, uh, can only be happy if, therefore, do what makes you happy. Do whatever makes you happy. Now, again, the problem with these thoughts is not that we shouldn't pursue happiness in some way, I actually think we should, Uh, just look at how many times words that describe happiness are used in Scripture. Uh, This isn't the best way to do theology, but you get a sense of kind of the the breadth of times that that Scripture brings up this topic, right? It it talks that the word delight is used 77 times in the ESV. Rejoice is used 161 times in the USV. Joy is used 179 times in the ESV. Or even words like sing or sang or song, which together are used 215 times. And the vast majority of those, if you were to go and look at at all of those words as they are used, they're speaking positively of God delighting in His people and God's people delighting in Him. God does want us to pursue happiness. But we must pursue happiness where it is found, and true and lasting happiness is found in Jesus. And so if by do what makes you happy, uh, you mean pursue Jesus with all your heart, then by all means, do what makes you happy. But if not, then you are on a futile mission. It's a lie. Whatever it is, it won't make you happy. And the reason is this, this lie destroys both our relationships and our joy. You see, when we say, I can only be happy if, and then, and then we set our hearts on that thing, what happens to our relationships? How do we think about the people around us? Well, people become a, a means to an end or obstacles in our way. I, I begin using people, using my friends, using my family, using my spouse or my children to give me what I think will make me happy. And if it works for a time, all is good, but when they get in the way, right, when they, when they can't play Jesus in my life anymore, well, suddenly things turn sour. That's when we get angry or grumpy or cold or cross. Now, sometimes we, we work together, don't we, to, to make one another happy, and, and that's good, right, that, that's to be commended, but people are still seen as a means to an end or an obstacle in our way. The world is seen as us or them. If you are working with me to make me happy, well, then I'll work with you to make you happy. But if not, you better watch out. The same is true even in our relationship with God, right? If, if I am using God to give me what I think will make me happy, I will praise him as long as he supplies. But the moment the tap runs dry, suddenly God is against me. He, he doesn't love me. He doesn't care. And I, I begin to doubt if God is as good as everyone says he is. See, this lie will destroy your relationships. This lie, I can only be happy if, will destroy your relationships, both your relationships with other people and your relationship with God. This lie, I can only be happy if, will also destroy your joy. Uh, I should say I'm not using the words joy and happiness in any distinct ways. Uh, Some some people make a distinction between happiness and joy. I'm not doing that. You could do that based on etymology. Uh, the, The problem is we really use the words as synonyms today, which is the way that I'm using them here. To be happy in or to find joy in is to delight in. It means to have positive feelings toward and about and because of something. But if you begin to say, I can only be happy if... That will almost inevitably destroy the very happiness you are seeking. Why is that? Well, the most obvious is uh, if you don't get that thing. Uh, If you tell yourself, I can only be happy if my home is clean. I just can't think. I just can't rest. I just can't be content unless everything is in order where it ought to be. If you believe that, what's going to happen when your children come home from school? The end of your joy. If you don't get the thing you set your heart on, if you don't get the, the happiness that comes with that thing, that, that may not be so bad if it's a clean house. I mean, you can always clean. But what if it's a, a spouse and you just don't seem to find the right person and you grow old alone? You're, if your life and happiness hinges on that, it hinges on something that's out of your control and you find yourself perhaps growing bitter or angry or resentful or jealous Of course, if you do find the right spouse, and having set your heart on that person, woe to that person if they don't live up to your expectations. You see, once you set your heart on something as the source of your joy, that thing begins to twist your heart. Uh, Paul puts it this way in 1 Timothy 6, 6 through 10. He says, "'But godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing with these, we will be content.'" But those who desire to be rich, and you can take riches there as as one of a a number of things we might set our hearts on. Paul is talking about riches, but there could be other things. Those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs." Now, is it that money is bad? No, right? Money is not bad. It's that once you set your heart on some good in the present age, that good sours in your heart. Uh, Paul Tripp puts it like this. He He says often, a desire for a good thing becomes a bad thing when that desire becomes a ruling thing in your heart. Or Tim Keller often says something similar. He says the desire for a good thing becomes a bad thing when we treat that good thing as if it were an ultimate thing, something that could truly satisfy. Once we elevate created things to the status of something that can satisfy my heart or something that I cannot live without, we are worshiping and serving created things. We have given this thing a power over us it was never meant to have. We have turned the created order on its head. We are serving the creature rather than the creator, and it will not end well. That thing cannot satisfy. We have essentially made ourselves addicts, right, looking for the perfect drug to calm and quiet our souls, except it's more dangerous because it's less obvious when the drug is something like education or reputation or a loving spouse or obedient kids, Now, this lie, I can only be happy if, does have some truth to it. Because the truth is, we were made to find joy in. Uh, Remember, Satan is not original, right? He's not an artist, he's not creative, he cannot invent, he can only distort and pervert and twist the truth. And the truth is, God gives us good things to enjoy. In fact, you know, Satan always plays both sides of the field. Scripture says it is satanic to forbid enjoying those good things. 1 Timothy 4, 1 through 5, Paul says this, Now the Spirit expressly says that in latter times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage... And require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. See, we are to receive good gifts from our Father, and we are to enjoy them. Now, we are moving toward Philippians 4, 11 to 13, and there Paul proclaims his contentment apart from the things of this world. But if you just read the rest of the letter of Philippians, you will see Paul finds joy in many things in this life. Uh, Philippians 1, 3 to 5, Paul talks about his joy because of the Philippians' partnership in the gospel. Philippians 1, 18, Paul rejoices when Christ is proclaimed whatever motives of those who proclaim him. Philippians 2, 1 through 3, uh, Paul wants the joy of knowing the Philippians are single-minded and unified and putting others ahead of themselves. Philippians 2, 25 to 30, Paul recognizes the sorrow he would have felt if his fellow worker Epaphroditus had died and the sorrow others felt because they had heard Epaphroditus was sick. And so he's sending a recovered Epaphroditus to Philippi so that they may rejoice at seeing him again and that Paul may be less anxious. So he instructs them to receive Epaphroditus with joy. He even goes so far as to call the Philippians his joy in Philippians 4.1. Now, you might say, okay, fine, but all of these things are kind of religious things. Paul is rejoicing in all kinds of things in the present life, but he's rejoicing. Those are all kind of religious things. What about everyday life type stuff? Can we find joy in that, according to Scripture? Can we find joy in the everyday? Well, uh, not only does the Bible give a resounding yes to that question, but often the things that we are most tempted to idolize are the things that God commands us to enjoy, it's because they are sources of great joy that we are tempted to idolize them. So when we look beyond the book of Philippians, we see God commands us to rejoice in things like sex and food and even alcohol. Uh, so uh, husbands in Proverbs are exhorted to rejoice in the wife of their youth, to let her body fill you with delight. That's in the Bible, in the book of Proverbs. Proverbs. The prophets repeatedly envision a day when God's people will rejoice in his provision of abundant and rich food. Even alcohol, scripture says, was made by God as a gift to give us joy. In Psalm 104, verse 15, it says that wine is meant to gladden our hearts. And so sex and food and alcohol, all gifts from God in in which we were meant to delight, and yet, because they are such great gifts... They all can be misused. Uh, sex can be taken outside of marriage. We can overeat and gorge ourselves on food, and alcohol can easily become our master instead of a servant. But that they can be misused only shows that these are powerful gifts from a good God to be enjoyed according to his word. And so the lie is I, I can only be happy if. If I have some uh, thing in this created world, only if God gives me this will I be happy. But this lie destroys our relationships and our joy because it leads us to seeing people as either means or obstacle, and it gives power to created things that they were never meant to have, which makes us a slave rather than a master over creation. But there is something true here, which is that we were made to find joy in God's world. God made the world as a gift for his children, and we are to receive it and give thanks for those good gifts. There's something else true about this lie, because in the end, we were made to find ultimate joy in something, or rather, in someone. And it's not just someone within the created order, of course, not someone who is a part of this age, because we were made to find ultimate joy, not in the good gifts, but in the giver of those gifts, which brings us then to the point that contentment is only found in Christ. As we come to Philippians 4, uh, let me reread verses 10 through 13 again. Philippians 4.10, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need— I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Now, here's what we see in these verses, that we we can rejoice, we can be happy, we can find contentment, whatever our circumstances, because we can rejoice in Christ. Uh, Note the context here, Paul's situation in uh, this letter. The Philippians had sent him a gift. They were supporting him financially, as as, uh, any church might support a missionary, and this apparently was something that they had done from the beginning, as verses 14 to 16 tell us. And this is extra special because the Philippians were apparently a rather poor people. As Paul talks about in 2 Corinthians 8, uh, the Philippians in Macedonia, he says, gave out of their extreme poverty and beyond their means. And so here's this church who has given Paul a financial gift, and Paul rejoices in the Lord because of their generosity. And yet he wants to point out that he's not rejoicing, or or that he's rejoicing not because he had some lack, and now finally he has the finances that he needs. No. In verse 11, he says, not that I'm speaking of being in need. Now, Paul doesn't say, not that I am in need but that he is not speaking of being in need. In other words, his, his fulfilled need is not the cause of his joy. Uh, he, he'll explain in verses 17 to 18 that the cause of his joy, in verse 10, is the Philippians' service to God. He's rejoicing that they served God. Well, why is this important to point out? Well, uh, why, why does Paul say, I'm not rejoicing because my needs have been fulfilled? One reason is likely the Philippians' own poverty. Right? He, he wants them to think about their poverty rightly, so he, he launches into teaching on contentment. Verse 11, he says, Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. Now, Paul uh, has commanded the Philippians three times in this letter to rejoice. Philippians 3.1, Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. Philippians 4.4, 4, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, Rejoice. Paul wants them to know that such joy is not dependent on their circumstances in any way. And so, using himself as an example, he says, I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. Paul wants them to see, and he wants us to see, again, that we can rejoice whatever our circumstances because we can rejoice in Christ. Now, first, let's think about our circumstances. Uh, then, Then we'll consider the secret that Paul gives. Notice the various circumstances Paul talks about here. Being brought low, probably meaning economically. Abounding, again, likely meaning having all of his needs met and more. Any and every circumstance, he says, just just so as not to leave anything out. Uh, The ESV says any and every circumstance. The King James Version says everywhere and in all things. One commentator suggested anywhere and anytime. And however it's translated, the point is the same. Whatever is going on, wherever I am, whatever time it might be, Paul says he has learned the secret. The secret of what? Place, facing The secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need, having a full belly or an empty one, having nothing or having everything. And, and, and just think for a minute about Paul's actual circumstances, right? If you, if you think about Paul, the apostle, what, what were his circumstances? Well, he, he he gives them to us multiple times in Scripture. 1 Corinthians 4, 11, He says, To the present hour, we hunger and thirst. We are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless. 2 Corinthians 4, 8 through 11. We are afflicted in every way, perplexed, persecuted, struck down, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, always being given over to death for Jesus' sake. 2 Corinthians 11, the, the longest list. Paul compares himself to the false apostles, and he says that he has far more imprisonments with countless beatings and often near death. And apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Paul has experienced much more hunger and need than plenty and abundance, much more being brought low than abounding. How easy would it, would it have been for Paul to grumble? How easy to grow bitter? How easy to wonder if God was really good? How easy to lash out at others who seem to have it better? Isn't that what we often do in difficult circumstances? We doubt God's goodness. We grow bitter toward our circumstances. We grow envious of others. Our hearts grow cold and hard, but not Paul. Not Paul. Why? Is Paul somehow superhuman? I mean, sometimes we, we kind of dismiss him as, well, Paul was an apostle. Of course he, he rejoiced, even in difficulty. Has Paul uh, achieved some level of spirituality that we can only dream of? No. But he has learned the secret. The secret of having little or having much. Having much. It's interesting. Do you ever wonder why Paul even mentions knowing how to abound and the secret of facing plenty and abundance? I mean, do we need to learn the secret of being content when things are going well? Well, Paul thinks so. Uh, think about the, the words in the book of Proverbs, verse, uh, chapter 30, verses 7 through 9. The writer says, "'Two things I ask of you, ask of God. Deny them not to me before I die. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me, lest I be full and deny you and say, "'Who is the Lord?' Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God.'" Both poverty and riches bring with them unique temptations. Times of abounding and need, both are times of temptation. In Deuteronomy, Moses warns God's people to be careful when they enter into the land. In Deuteronomy chapter 8, he says, Take care. Lest you forget the Lord your God, lest when you have eaten and are full and have built good houses and live in them, and when your herds and flocks multiply and your silver and gold is multiplied and all that you have is multiplied, then your heart be lifted up and you forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. See, see poverty might lead us to doubt God's goodness, but riches might lead us to forget. Well, what about your circumstances? We live in America, so most of us are wealthy by the standards of the world and the standards of history. That doesn't mean that there aren't situations where we are facing some kind of hunger or need. Whether plenty or hunger, abundance or need, what are your temptations in the midst of that? Are you tempted to doubt God, to blame Him, to lash out at Him when things go poorly? Or are you tempted to forget God, to immerse yourselves in the pleasures of this age when things go well, to delight in the gifts but ignore the giver? What have been your temptations during COVID? And this has been a trial for many. Where has your heart been in the midst of that? Has it stolen your joy? Well, what is the secret? What is the secret to being content in the midst of these things? What is the secret to facing life, the secret of contentment, the secret of rejoicing whatever our circumstances, anywhere and anytime, in anything and everything? Well, Paul says this in verse 13. He says, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Now, right away, we need to understand that this verse is often misunderstood, It's often taken as a verse about our ability to accomplish things. The word do has been taken to mean accomplishment. As one website put it, when we turn to Jesus Christ, we are able to do things we never dreamed were possible. But that is not what this verse is about. It's not about accomplishment. The word for all things is actually the same as the word for any and every circumstance in verse 12. Verse 13, Paul is saying, uh, or is saying that Paul has the power to face plenty and hunger, abundance and need. He has the power to be content regardless of his circumstances. We might paraphrase verse 13 as, I can endure all things through him who strengthens me, or I can be content in the midst of all things through him who strengthens me. Now, the word through there. Elsewhere in Scripture, elsewhere in the New Testament, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. The word through is more often than not in other places actually translated in. Uh, It's the word uh, that Paul uses dozens of times to refer to being in Christ. And so as one commentator put it, this phrase, in him who strengthens me, refers to being in vital union with the one who strengthens me. And so what is Paul's secret of contentment, whatever his circumstances? What is his anytime, anywhere, in anything and everything contentment? Where does that come from? He faces all of life in him who strengthens him. He faces all of life in Christ. He is strengthened to face life by being in Christ. The secret of contentment is that we are in Christ. Now, what does that mean? It means there is a bigger picture. It means that whatever my outward circumstances, I am in Christ. And why is this so important? Well, remember who Christ is. Christ is the one who, as God, was outside of our circumstances. He was not subject to them, but was sovereign over them. And yet he entered in. He came into this world. He came into this age. He gave up knowing only happiness, and he entered pain. He was brought low, according to Philippians 2.8. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. The one who was rich for our sakes became poor. His riches did not own him. He gave up everything to obey his father and save us. But where did that humbling lead? It led to the grave, yes, but the grave led to the resurrection. We want to delight in circumstances. More often than not, we want to delight in circumstances that fade, that fade. Circumstances of this age which at their peak do not satisfy and over time do not last. Things which are subject to death and decay. Christ laid uh, laid aside for a time the glory that was eternal that he might become subject to death and decay, to die for our sins but to rise victorious, to overcome the futility of this age and to enter into resurrection life. Anyone who belongs to Christ is following in that path, the path of Jesus, which means suffering and difficulty now, resurrection life to come. True contentment is based on joy in the resurrection. Christ's past resurrection because he has overcome sin and death, and our future resurrection when we will rise with him and death will be no more. Well, what does this look like? What does this contentment look like then? What does this resurrection joy look like? We get a good picture of it in Acts chapter 16. Paul and Silas are uh, attacked, arrested, beaten with rods, thrown into prison unjustly, and their feet are locked up in stocks. Now that's pretty extreme. How would you respond? Brutally beaten, unjustly imprisoned, what's your response? What's the response of Silas and Paul? They begin to sing. They they sing to God. They rejoice in the Lord in prison, right there in prison, bloodied and battered, and they begin to sing. Here are two men about whom you can only say nothing can steal their joy. What steals your joy? What stops you from singing? Where do you say, "I I can't sing because... You have forgotten that you are in Christ, that you are united to the one who rose from the dead and that sin of death have been defeated in him and you too will rise from the dead on the last day. Repent of pursuing joy in the things of this life and look to Jesus and find joy in him, in his love, in his mercy, in his grace, which do not change and do not fade. Push into the painful parts of life and be willing to do hard things rather than avoid them knowing that your joy is not in this life, but is in Christ now and in the resurrection to come, and that nothing in this life can change that, not plenty or hunger, not abundance or need. Let's pray. Our Father, we pray that you would give us this joy as we look to Jesus our Savior, as we know that we are united to him, as we know that our sins are forgiven in him and death is defeated in him and we have the hope of the resurrection in him. Give us joy in him. Help our hearts and our minds to be so consumed with thoughts of Christ and the gospel that we would live joyfully every moment of every day and even when sadness comes our way and we, and we mourn the brokenness of this age, which we ought to do, even then we would have joy in Christ, that, that, that we would mourn, but not mourn as those who have no hope and not mourn as those who have no joy. Help us to learn this secret that Paul knew of being content in Christ. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.